Oh, it's pretty late, but not too late for a show. But instead of hooking up the gear, I think I'll just do a phone here. Just do a phone. So we call doing a phone. I could describe so many things these days. Doing a phone. I'm just doing a phone. Things might as well be on that level. Language might as well be on that level. I was at the store earlier today, and you know how much I love to talk about my grocery store visits. And there were two ladies there, and they were the real-life embodiment of those Simpsons characters who we know are real. You know, those sisters on The Simpsons, Marge's sisters, Patty and Thelma. Not even a big Simpsons fan myself, but we all know who those characters are and why they're real. And uh, these two ladies, I've had a couple experiences with duos, with with duos of women. A few days ago, I was at, just to distract from my original story already, I was at Rite Aid. And uh, there were two ladies there, and I immediately they made me happy. I had no interaction with them. They weren't sisters, but they, they both were from a different time. I would say they were both probably in their mid to late 40s but they were still trying to look like they were in their 20s. And it wasn't depressing. It wasn't attractive either. But it was like they were both in the same sort of clothes that they were probably wearing 20 years ago. Like tight jeans, tight dark jeans, and some sort of you know sweaters or something like that. And they both had big hair, at least big for this area frosted one of them was bleached and kind of frosted the other one was that color i don't even know how to describe it it's probably what people refer to as dishwater blonde but fake kind of a dark blonde with almost silver highlights like it wasn't her gray hair it was it seemed deliberate a lot of makeup and they were buying candy and you could tell that they were best friends they were just from a completely different time and they were they seemed more youthful than a lot of young women that I come across. A lot of young women that I come across have this old woman energy. And I think it's deliberate but it's become real. I've noticed this with women from my generation and a little bit younger where where they they pretended to be so lethargic and depressed that they've just become that. And the result is they have the physical energy of old women. You know, if you pretend to be something long enough, you become it. But these two women I saw at Rite Aid, like even though they're aging, and even though I think a lot of people would have walked into that store and seen them, and not necessarily been disgusted by them, but definitely thought, oh, look at those two 40-something women. They're still trying to be 25-year-olds from 1999 but I rarely see that anymore and their entire everything they were doing in the store was synchronized like one of them would go over you know I followed them around no but I just saw them and and everything they were doing like one of them would go over to the candy section and like look for one specific thing And you could tell it wasn't fleeting. You could tell like everything about them. You could tell they did everything together. 
it wasn't that sort of thing that you come across where like, I've noticed this with women in particular, where women kind of have a best friend of the month. I've seen this happen with a lot of women I know. Well, they'll, they'll have a brand new best friend and they take a bunch of photos together and they do everything together. And if you were to meet them during that month, you would think that they had been best friends for life. They bond very quickly. But then it just sort of dissipates after a month or two. It's a weird phenomenon that I've noticed with women. I haven't experienced it myself with other men. Usually if I'm a good enough friend with another man, if we're good enough friends to bond like that, it's pretty much set in stone. But it seems like a lot of my female friends, a lot of what I've, obs- I've observed with women, is they'll bond very quickly, but then it just sort of dissipates. I don't even say that as a criticism. It just seems to be something about women. And I know someone would hear that and be like, I know so many women who are best friends for life, you know. But I think there is something to that best friends for a month sort of phenomenon. And maybe there's a function to it. I don't even think it's a bad thing necessarily because it's not my life. I'm simply noticing. I'm I'm observing. But these two seemed like they had been best friends for a long time. And they hadn't quite let go of their style from decades past. But I saw them and it just made my day a little bit better. They seemed like a couple of women who would be fun to have this sort of flirty energy with. Like I wasn't even sexually attracted to them. Hey buddy. Like I bet if I had met them 20 years ago they would have been hot. But instead they just kind of, they just had that perfect energy. It's hard to explain without you having seen them. But the, the, the two women I saw today in the grocery store were a completely different entity, but similar in that they seemed like they were lifelong best friends. So I guess these two sets of women sort of, they challenge my theory that women have these like fleeting month-long best friendships that come and go. But the women I saw today, I don't, they might have been sisters. I got more of a sister vibe from them because they seemed like Patty and Thelma, I think those are their names, from The Simpsons. Very harsh smoker voices. And whereas Patty and Thelma are more laid back and kind of disinterested, these two were just talking loudly, talking across aisles. But they were on a mission. And they both had glasses and sort of stale hair. They didn't really look like Patty and Thelma, but they had that vibe. And you know it's real. But very harsh smoker voices. I hadn't actually heard a voice like that in a while. And this sort of animalistic, primitive approach to grocery store shopping. Where they were like looking around. Like they didn't seem like they were on drugs or anything. You could almost get that impression like something was... Something unnatural was going on with them. But it actually seemed very natural. It seemed animalistic. And they were communicating everything out loud. And at one point, I was looking at something and I heard like, Oh, go get the chocolate. You gotta go, get, go, go get the chocolate. And one of them went over to where they have these bars of chocolate. And she was like, they got two left. All right, let's get out of here. And they weren't doing anything wrong or criminal. But there was this sense of urgency to them. But I didn't get the impression that there was anything urgent in their lives. It was just they had gone to that store for a few items. They didn't have baskets. Everything they were getting, they were holding. And I don't actually remember anything except the chocolate. So they weren't getting much. 
But the way they grabbed these two chocolate bars and then hurried off. And then I ended up being behind them in line when I was checking out. And, uh, of course, oh, and it was great, too, because, like, when they were checking out, like, they realized they had forgotten something, and one of them rushed off to go get it, and she came back with two Powerades. So they were buying chocolate bars and Powerade. I know they were getting that much. But it was amazing. Just because it was, their energy, <laughs> their energy was so strong, you know. And so I've been thinking about them all day. Because I have to imagine, like this other set of women that I saw at Rite Aid the other day, they seem like they do everything together. And I think they might have been sisters, but their voices were so distinct. It was just, you couldn't script a character like this. You couldn't, like you couldn't even pretend to talk that way. Even if you were doing a character and you were very good at voices, their, their harsh smoker voices were so good. Okay, go get the chocolate bar. I can't even do it. Go get the chocolate bars. It's just embarrassing to even try and do it. They were a bright spot in my day, though. Seeing them, it was a, a real bright spot. Because there's kind of a desolation in the air, and I feel like I say that every episode now. Feels that way especially strong today, being the day before Thanksgiving. Because I'm not doing anything tomorrow, you know, I'm not, I don't really celebrate Thanksgiving, and even before my mom died, and I, I haven't celebrated Thanksgiving for years, not for political reasons. I've just always found something kind of depressing about Thanksgiving, and even though it's nice that people congregate, and I don't know if you're allowed to or not anymore, I don't know, I really have no concept of what people are supposed to do or not do anymore, it's all become very strange. I stopped celebrating it years ago because I just, I don't enjoy the food. I'm not a fan of any of the food. I don't hate it. Like as a kid, I hated it. As a kid, I hated pumpkin pie. I hated turkey. I still hate stuffing. I don't hate it, but it's just, I don't see the pleasure in it. It's, it's strange to me that people enjoy it so much because the colors, the texture, the way it looks the taste, none of it does anything for me. And every once in a while, I will have turkey, and I'm like, this is good. It makes me realize I don't actually hate it, but the way it all kind of congeals together, the f I think part of it is the fact that everybody talks about it nonstop. And here I am talking about it, of course. But it's like, it's not just that I'm ambivalent, if not in. It's not just that I'm ambivalent, if not uh, opposed to some of the food on Thanksgiving. It's that then the conversation revolves around that food. So if you're not into the food or if you don't like some of it, the fact that so much of the day revolves around food you don't like. And I, I don't say that from the point of view of someone who like resents the fact that people get to eat. I don't resent the fact that other people enjoy Thanksgiving. Like my mom, she loved Thanksgiving. She really enjoyed a traditional Thanksgiving meal. But anytime I, I got invited to Thanksgiving, I never went. The last number, probably the last decade, I just stopped going to anything. And that would make somebody sad. Somebody thinks that's sad. There's, there's something kind of lonesome about it, I admit. You know, there is something kind of lonesome about it. 
But, uh, you know, I'd rather be lonesome on Thanksgiving than participating in it. It's just kind of how I am. And I've talked on here before about the way I feel about restaurants. I don't enjoy sitting at a table and eating with people. I don't believe in facing people. And maybe part of that's the way I was raised. You know, growing up with my mom, we would eat, like I would eat dinner on the couch. And to be fair, our couch, instead of having uh, soft armrests, it had these wooden armrests that were kind of big. So you kind of had a table on each side of the couch. Like a little, it was enough to rest a plate on. And my mom would sit in a chair and I would sit on the couch and we would just eat watching TV like so many people do. So I never got in the, the habit of eating at a table, let alone eating with other people at a table. And I feel weird about doing it. And I know that makes me weird. I've talked about this before, and as I've said, you know, I know that that's not normal. I know that I know that's not normal for me to not enjoy sitting at a table with people. It kind of goes against all common advice. All common advice is like, he who eats alone dies alone. And maybe that's true. I don't care. That's fine. If that's true, that's fine. There's just something about sitting at a table facing people while you eat. Because I guess I don't enjoy eating, or rather, I don't enjoy talking at the dinner table either. And probably because a lot of it, it ends up involving food and it involves this weird small talk that takes place while you're eating. And my grandpa had a hard rule about that. My grandpa had a hard rule about no talking at the dinner table and he enforced it. And when I was a kid, I thought that was a little weird. I thought it was kind of weird because I didn't really, I didn't think about it. But I remember thinking like, oh, it's weird that grandpa is adamant that nobody talk at the dinner table. But by the time I was a teenager, I, I really started to understand it. I was like, it makes complete sense why grandpa didn't want people to talk at the dinner table. And I brought that up with my best friend when I was growing up. I said, hey... Because he kind of had a similar sensibility. And I was like, hey, my grandpa had this hardline rule about no talking at the dinner table. Doesn't that make sense? And my friend was like, absolutely. So there's something about that. I don't know if that's just us, but I know I'm not alone. I know that it runs in the family. And I know that my best childhood friend agreed with me. No talking at the dinner table. Because like while people talk, it's like they inevitably talk with food in their mouth. And that's not even the reason. That's just part of it. That just adds to my reasoning. And I wouldn't even say it's well-reasoned or based on reason. Reason. I, it's just kind of an intuitive thing where I'm just kind of like, you shouldn't talk at the dinner table. In fact, if you're me, you don't even like to eat at the dinner table. So Thanksgiving to me as a kid, we would go to other people's houses typically. I don't remember a lot of Thanksgivings at my house. We would typically get invited somewhere else. And honestly, it felt like hell. The visuals were hellish. The fact that it all revolved around this food I didn't like. It just seemed like hell to me. So I don't mind being alone on Thanksgiving. It's okay. <laughs> but it is a lonesome experience because you know people are congregating. But today there was just some desolation in the air. And I know the night before Thanksgiving is typically a party night. 
you know, I know in a lot of people go home. A lot of people go to their hometown. They visit their hometown for Thanksgiving. So I know that a lot of townies are out on the town and they see people from high school they haven't seen in a while. I've never had that experience because I don't think I've I don't think I've ever gone to my hometown during Thanksgiving and been there the night before and done that whole thing. I've been out with other people here in Olympia who came from Olympia and if you go out to a bar with them they run into everybody they've ever known the night before Thanksgiving. It's kind of cool. I don't know if that was going on tonight. I don't know if it still goes on. I didn't feel like it. I went for a walk tonight and it just, it didn't even seem like anything was going on. It just seemed like people were already drunk and driving all over the place. It, it, it just seemed dark, literally and otherwise. And I was walking and, and up ahead, I saw two homeless guys and one of them had a really wide stance. Like his legs were spread really far apart and there was no street light. I could just barely see his silhouette and he, he looked to be pulling at something and it looked to me like he was pulling at the base of a street light. And I know sometimes they'll pull out the wiring and stuff, so I don't know. I mean, maybe the street light was on, but I just saw the silhouette of the guy. And so he was either pulling at the base of a, a light or a, just some sort of electrical panel along the side of the road. Or he was like rifling through a big bag, but he was doing something didn't seem entirely, you know, I didn't, I, and he was taking up a lot of the sidewalk. Cause as I said, he had a big wide stance and then there was another guy kind of off to the side in the shadows of the building he was near. And I was just like, you know what? I think it's a good idea not to walk by those guys, whatever they're doing. It doesn't involve me. I think it's better just cause I would have to go in between them and I would have to watch out for this guy's wide stance that's taking up the entire sidewalk. So I ended up cutting through this parking lot and immediately I just hear this woman sobbing deeply. And a lot of homeless people live behind the Starbucks. There's some woods and she was there. Like she was, there's kind of a, uh, there's a little wall that separates the Starbucks drive through from the woods. And I could tell that she was on the other side of that wall and she was just sobbing deep, deep guttural sobbing. And I listened to make sure nothing bad was happening. Like she wasn't crying for help. There was no sound of another human being. Like she wasn't being attacked. And the reality is you very well might hear that, you know, it's pretty common actually, especially with homeless women in my experience, just to hear this deep sobbing come from them. And it's horrible. It's, it's, it's awful to hear you feel for them, but I made sure that she wasn't sobbing because something horrible was happening to her or anything like that. But I was just like, Oh man. Like here, I, I was trying to get away from these guys who are doing something weird. And then I take a detour and I just hear this horrible, deep sobbing. And then there was just like, every, everybody had something going on. Then there was this big group of people standing in the parking lot. Not a big group of people, but like five, six. And they were definitely up to no good. They were all standing around a car doing something. 
And I was just like, yeah, it's, it's not a good night. And uh, it doesn't seem like there's... And then, you know, just everybody out was hunchbacked. It was like being in hell. It was like Thanksgiving. Turns out Thanksgiving is hell, and so is the night before Thanksgiving. But no, it was like everybody was just miserable. Everybody looked a little bit unhinged. And there was a guy like bent over, hunched over, like running back and forth across this busy street. And so I was just avoiding people the entire walk. And then it just continued from there. It was like people on bikes who were just completely hunched over. There was a lot of hunching going on. And there's a certain posture to it. Like there's people who are just so far gone. They just ride bikes around this area and they look like wraiths, like the way wraiths ride horses in Lord of the Rings, where they're just, they no longer have a, a human shape. They have a humanoid shape, but they're just bent over. Like life has just fully defeated them. And it's sad, but it's just, you also want to avoid them. And so there was a lot of that out. And I have to say too, you know, somebody might be like, oh, what, you, you can't deal with a little homelessness? But I have to explain, you know, the, the visual of where I live because you're used to seeing that downtown and it's like homeless people in this area are nothing new and it's sad they ended up there. I don't judge them. But I live, my, my area is very suburban, but it's the end of the suburbs. Like basically, I mean, and downtown Olympia is not a real city. Downtown Olympia is two streets the actual downtown, what would be considered downtown, where the bars and restaurants are, it's two streets and about four blocks, if that. Maybe three blocks spread out over two streets. So it's a very small downtown. And downtown Olympia has been pretty rough for a while. It's been pretty grim for years. But where I live is a little further away. And it's basically kind of the edge of the suburbs before the suburbs just turn into woods. I live at the edge of the woods. And then it becomes kind of semi-rural. The college is over here. And these are the only people you ever see, especially at night. And so somebody who's like, oh, you ever heard of New York? Oh, what's the matter? You're not tough? Like that young liberal who, who lived in the ghetto for a month while they were in college will be like, what, you never lived in a bad neighborhood? What, you never lived in a city? It's not about my own sensitivity. I don't think I'm sensitive. I don't think I'm fearful. It's just a strange world where that's all you see now, at least where I live. If I go for a walk at 9 o'clock at night in a suburban slash semi-rural woodsy area, all I see are people who have just been completely destroyed by life. Completely. They're bent over. They're sobbing uncontrollably in the woods. Their legs are spread far apart and they're pulling at something, either the base of the streetlight or, or something that's at their feet. I don't even know what, maybe nothing. And so when that's all you see, it's just, it's insane. And you're supposed to, 
you're not supposed to comment on it because commenting on it at all is considered judgmental or cruel. And hopefully that it doesn't come across that way because I don't want to give that impression that that's where I'm coming from. But it's not a good thing. You can't pretend that it's okay. And it's more and more common. And you don't even want to get into the reasons for it. I mean, you can. I'm not afraid to get into why this happens because everyone's an expert. Uh, the reason why we have increasing desolation and why the area where the suburbs meet semi-rural woods are just filled with people crawling, people who pretty much live on their hands and knees, screaming and crying and muttering to themselves. The reason for that is because Republicans wouldn't fund the blah, blah, blah. Oh, the reason for that is because the liberals enable it. Oh, the reason for that is because we got rid of mental institutions. I'm... I'm not even trying to get into the, the why or the how. I'm just simply talking about the what. And on a night like tonight, I wouldn't say it got to me. Like, it didn't affect me emotionally. But it was just every single place I turned, this is what I saw. And it's I've been to Skid Row. I've been to Skid Row. I've been to places where there's a high concentration of poverty and horror. It's not like I'm comparing this to that. But what I'm getting at is just that it's such a fact of life. And it, it's, it's not something that you typically would have seen in this environment. And it's not going anywhere and it seems to be multiplying. And I walked to the store last night and it was the same thing. And the Safeway parking lot, of course, is filled with this. And it was perfect because there's a lot of street nicknames. And uh, when I was leaving Safeway, a young street guy went up to an old guy. And he goes, hey, sh hey Shadow. And like I said, they all talk like wiggers. I've commented on this a lot, including recently, but it, it's still worth saying that a lot of these people talk in this sort of ebonic slang. Regardless of their age and background, a lot of the people who live in the woods in Olympia, Washington, talk in this sort of ebonics street slang. And so as I'm leaving Safeway, this young guy walks hurriedly up to this old man. Not an, no, he wasn't an old man. He was just older. Okay, he, he wasn't an old man. He was older. He was an older street guy. And the young guy was just like, Hey, Shadow, have you seen Ben? And I thought that was so perfect. The guy, he, the old guy was named Shadow. And my friend Nick wrote a short story when he was living in Olympia about a street guy. And I'm trying to remember what his nickname was that he gave him. But he lived downtown, so he observed all this. And there were a lot of those sorts of nicknames. Just really common, like if you just had to come up with a nickname for a character on the fly, you'd come up with a name like Shadow. Hey Shadow, have you seen Ben? And then as I'm walking through the parking lot, Ben shows up. And I know he's Ben, because the guy who was looking for him goes, Hey Ben, where the fuck's my bike? 
And Ben is walking. Ben is definitely on methamphetamine. Because Ben is walking so fast and erratically. You know, there's no question he's on he's on methamphetamine. And his pants are like sagging down to his knees and he's in a, a giant hoodie. And he starts like weaving and they get into this confrontation and there's yelling and like Ben is zigzagging all over the parking lot. Like a car has to avoid them. And so it was clear that like Ben borrowed this other guy's bike and probably sold it because there's a lot of, because that's one of the big currencies around here. I'm sure everywhere, but a lot of bikes get stolen and they get sold. And it's, it's not uncommon at all to see a transient or homeless person in this area with two bikes and they're walking them because just bikes are a currency. They're constantly being stolen, traded, sold. And so this guy, he apparently lent Ben his bike, which he probably should have known better than to do. And Ben showed up without the bike. And so there's this confrontation in the parking lot. I don't think it escalated into violence, but not uncommon at all to see those confrontations in this parking lot. I've seen a few of them in recent months, but it's rough. You know, and you end up feeling like Travis Bickle from Trax... Traxi from Traxi Driver? What the fuck is Traxi Driver? You end up feeling like Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver. Hard to say. Who knew that was a tongue twister? Taxi Bickle from Travis Driver? You end up feeling that way, where you're just like, man, things are just so dark and dirty. And it's been, you know, an interesting political week, which I, I'm poisoned, you know, at this point I'm, I'm beyond giving political disclaimers because I'm poisoned. I'm as corrupted as everyone else. I'm infected guys. I'm completely infected. Now I, I detach myself, but all it takes is one glimpse to get infected again. Who knew that politics were the real coronavirus? Turns out it's true. Politics are the real coronavirus. But the last week has been politically tense if you pay attention to anything. The former SS officer, Kyle Wittenhaus, was found not guilty, which isn't a surprise if you were aware of the evidence, which it turns out many people weren't and they don't care because they already made up their minds. And, you know, I mentioned, I brought that up briefly, I think, last week, and I mentioned how Kyle Wittenhouse was not my type of person. And I didn't mean that in a disparaging way. I just mean literally he's not. You know, he's a kid who went to a riot, a violent riot, which can't be forgotten. Many people... It's it's this is the craziest thing. I was talking to my friend on the phone tonight, and we were talking about how it's so difficult when this stuff comes up because there are people with these extremely strong opinions who either weren't aware of the extent of the rioting summer twenty twenty. They've either they either weren't aware of it in the first place because a lot of it was covered up. 
they've either forgotten it just because everybody forgets everything very quickly these days, or they've deliberately blocked it out or decided not to acknowledge it. But the rioting in Wisconsin was severe, and I'm not going to go into all that. If you want to know what happened, you can do your own research if you actually care to find out the objective facts of what happened. But this kid, you know, he went to this city with a, and he got a rifle and he was basically trying to protect this city. And I do believe that's what he was doing. So when I say he's not my type of person, I don't even mean that. I don't think that he was doing a bad thing at all. He might've been naive to think that he could go into that kind of environment and not end up in a horrible predicament. I think he may have been naive to believe that and, and naive to believe that whatever happened wouldn't be politicized in the worst possible way. But when I say he wasn't my type of person, I mean that just very literally. I'm because he did an interview where he said that he was an Andrew <laughs> he was an Andrew Yang supporter who kind of liked Trump because Trump was pro police. That's what I mean when I say he's not really my type of person. He's a kid. He's a kid who had kind of fluctuating political opinions. But anyway, you know, people had already made up their minds about who he was and what he was guilty of. And I, I think there had been kind of a glimmer of hope during the trial because some left-wing pundits had admitted after having seen the evidence in the trial, which it turns out many of us had seen immediately after the Kenosha riots happened. But because of the evidence that was presented in the trial, there were some left-wing pundits who, to their credit, and I, I always give people credit, anybody who admits they were wrong and walks something back, I give them credit. I don't believe in shaming somebody who does that. Anybody who's willing to admit they were wrong in most cases, should not be shamed for it. So some left-wing pundits admitted, oh, I didn't know that that's what actually happened. And so I will never shame somebody for that. And that gave me kind of a glimmer of hope that when the kid was found not guilty, which seemed like an inevitability, that maybe people would show some humility and not double down on their erroneous take. But that glimmer of hope was shut down, and I saw the responses, and I specifically, I don't check Facebook regularly, I don't even check Instagram regularly anymore, but I specifically checked Facebook and Instagram that day to see who people I, per to see what people I personally know were saying about it. They were hysterical. You know, they were in hysterics over him being found not guilty. And it was just disheartening because it's like, it's not, the problem isn't that I disagreed with them. It's the way they were expressing themselves and how arrogantly confident they were that they were right. Even though they were willing to go into emotional hysterics about it and make all kinds of claims as to why this kid got acquitted all of them revolving around white supremacy and how corrupt and biased our judicial process is. And it was just disheartening because I was like, this would have been a good opportunity 
for people to easily walk back some of their distorted views of, of, of what's taken place over the last couple of years. And this would have been an easy event for them to do that. But people, they immediately jumped into the, oh, it just shows you the, the court system favors white supremacy. And what got me about that is, did they forget? And, and of course, all of these are separate incidents. But it's like, did they forget that the that Derek Chauvin was convicted just a matter of months ago? Did they forget that a white police officer was convicted for killing George Floyd just a few months ago? That a white, an allegedly white supremacist judicial system convicted a white cop who are often viewed as a protected class who can get away with murder and sometimes do? The fact that he was convicted, like, did they forget about that? Was that not a victory to them? Was that not a sign that maybe the judicial process works in their favor? Whether you agree with the Chauvin verdict or not, they obviously did. But I said that at the time. I did an episode where I mentioned at the time of the Chauvin verdict that I didn't even think the leftists I know wanted him to be found guilty. It kind of plays into what Ted Kaczynski said about leftist psychology being masochistic where they almost want bad things to happen to them because that's the fuel that propels them that fuels their grievances that they so desperately want to express and so it's not surprising to me that that was so easily forgotten even though that case was such a big deal and even though if Derek Chauvin had been found not guilty we'd be hearing about it every day. The fact that he was convicted seems to have meant nothing. And they believe that Panzer Division, Hitler Youth, I know you can't be both of those, but why not? Panzer Division, Hitler Jugend, Kyle Wittenhaus, the fact that he was found not guilty is indicative of some white supremacist judicial system, you know, and completely forgetting that they had what should have, have been considered a major victory for them a matter of months ago. But I got the impression from reading people's takes, and these are people I personally know. I specifically seek out the opinions of people that I know. But you would think that Kyle Rittenhouse had been found not guilty of the murder of George Floyd. And that sounds absurd to say, but more and more when I look at the way people are thinking, it's like their brains right now are just these puzzle pieces floating around in a clear gel. And the puzzle pieces never really fit together. They just kind of rub up against each other every once in a while. Like, you know when you buy a goldfish how the, the fish comes in just a bag of water, which is really weird. It's weird. It, it's just, it's weird. It's just weird. But it's almost like they're, they're brains right now, and I'm not calling them stupid. I'm just saying there's something going on where it's almost like their brains are that clear bag of liquid that a goldfish comes in, but it's kind of this just clear gel with puzzle pieces just floating around in it. And sometimes those puzzle pieces just bump up against each other and form thoughts. 
And it wouldn't even be shocking if there was somebody out there who thought that Kyle Rittenhouse killed George Floyd and was found not guilty. Like, that wouldn't even be absurd in in the current dialogue that's going on. It's funny to make that joke, and I am joking when I say that. It's not like I actually saw somebody say that. But you'd think that that's what people were responding to. And then yesterday, you know, just five days after the Vietnamese verdict, you know, three white men, white men, were convicted of killing a black man. And I'm not going to go into the details of that. It is what it is. They were found guilty. It was certainly... It, it was it, there was certainly more reason to convict them than Kyle Rittenhouse. And I saw a couple, and I, I specifically looked at social media yesterday to see what the responses were, and I saw very few. I saw a couple people say, "Oh, finally some justice," and I'm glad when I see people acknowledge that. Because I do think there is this masochistic tendency, this negativity bias to only comment on things when they don't go your way. I'm glad that there were some people I, I know who acknowledged that things did go their way this time. The people they wanted to see convicted got convicted. But I wonder you know, where their minds are at, like where it's like just five days ago, a bunch of people were saying that a kid got found not guilty of a crime, an alleged crime, because of white supremacy. And then just five days later, in a state that has a far deeper history with racism, so-called racism, I don't like that word anymore, but a, a state that has far more history with bigotry and prejudice, that uh, three white men were found guilty of killing a black man. You know, it's just so strange to me, though, that it's like you're willing to make some sweeping generalization about the entire system just five days ago, and then when the complete opposite happens in a location where you might be more likely to suspect that the white men would get off, they actually ended up convicted. What does that do to your sweeping generalization about the system? And why isn't it a larger victory? I understand the idea that when you when there's when you when when you feel that justice has been served and that that plays into a larger political victory for you, I understand the idea that there's still more work to be done. I understand that you can't necessarily rest your hat on that. But I do get this feeling that people don't necessarily want that. They don't necessarily want things to go their way. Because it does give them more room to express their grievances. And clearly there's a deep, deep desire in our culture to express your grievances, but to never, to never satisfy them either. 
to keep expressing your grievances, but to get no satisfaction from doing that. And there are a lot of people, and you know them personally, and it's it involves events in their own personal life, events that have nothing to do with politics or society, but there's people you meet throughout your life and bad things happen to them and you get the impression they want that because it allows them to keep whining and complaining and playing the victim. And you, you see this play out on a larger level. You, you see this play out not just on an individual psychological level, but you see it play out on, on a level, on a sociological level too. And I think that's what we're seeing here. And what we're also seeing though is that it's this sort of, there's a co there's cognitive dissonance to it. Because on one hand, I think there's this desire to have things go the wrong way for you politically. Because that'll, that gives you something to complain about. But then on the other hand, when things don't go your way, you're upset because there is this need to have every single thing happen the way that you demand it. And if it doesn't go your way, it's obviously some great injustice. Derek Chauvin was convicted of killing a black man. But that's forgotten about when Kyle Rittenhouse is found not guilty of defending himself against three rather un unhinged individuals. But then five days later, things do go your way again. But we know that there's just one more story waiting to happen. And what still gets me is just the, the never walking anything back, never acknowledging error. And it's so important to be able to do that. It feels good to do that. Even though in the moment it doesn't, in the long run, it feels good to be wrong because you've learned something and you grow from that. Like when you're wrong about something, it's painful. But you actually end up stronger for it. And to the point where that sounds like a cliche, and it is, because it's true. But when you're wrong about something and you acknowledge it, it's initially painful, but that pain heals. That wound heals. And it actually expands your worldview. It expands your consciousness. It expands your, your capacity for thought. And I was thinking about something that happened about a year and a half ago where right before the George Floyd riots, protests and all that, what I think contributed to that was a few days earlier, it came out that a woman in Central Park had called the cops on a black man, allegedly for just bird watching. And it was this huge thing, like everybody I know was outraged. It really escalated the whole quote-unquote Karen thing where an, an alleged Karen called the cops on this black guy who was just bird watching in Central Park. 
people were so upset. There were all these, there were articles. So many people I know were like, this is the worst type of white woman. All oh, white women have, have gotten black men killed by cops all throughout history. And then a few days later, the George Floyd video came out and things just blew up. And maybe things would have blown up anyway. But in the days leading up to that, this story about the woman in Central Park had really riled people up. It had really brought racial tension to the forefront. And I don't know if people remember the role that that played, but it kind of primed the George Floyd situation. I'm not saying the George Floyd situation wouldn't have erupted the way it did. But I could see where this incident where the woman called the cops on the guy in Central Park really primed the whole situation. It really got people at the ready. But then it came out sometime later where the guy admitted that he had threatened to steal the woman's dog. She called the cops because he had threatened her. The way the story was presented initially was that she just called the cops because she was afraid of a black man in Central Park. But he himself admitted that he had threatened to steal her dog, something that would cause me to react quite severely. Batty just jumped on my lap. If somebody made any kind of remark to me when I was out and about about my dog, about doing something to my dog, about taking my dog, I can tell you that calling the cops would be among the options I was considering. One of several options. And so this woman was justified. I've not seen a single person walk that back. I have not seen a single person even acknowledge it. And it's not that I expect everybody who had an erroneous take to come out publicly and say, oh, hey, I was wrong about that opinion I had. But it's that they never do this for anything. They never walk anything back. They never acknowledge that anything they say and react to emotionally came from the wrong place or was based on the wrong information. And this isn't unique to any one particular viewpoint. But one thing I noticed, like knowing people with a variety of opinions, I notice a lot more moderates, definitely moderates, but also even people who have right-wing views, I see more and more that they qualify their statements. They say, well, I don't agree with that necessarily, but, or they add something in there that is intended to appease the left in some way. They make some kind of remark that indicates, oh, I'm, I'm about to say something that might draw ire from the left, but I'm going to add something to it that indicates... I'm not completely aligned with the right. 
or at the very least that I'm sympathetic to the left. And it's often untrue. It's what some people have referred to me to as a don't hurt me statement. I don't see people on the left do that very much. I don't see the left wing qualify their statements. They will just make these very severe, sweeping, all-consuming statements that are very um, incendiary, but they make no qualifications. They come from this place of complete moral certainty. And our culture supports that. Our culture right now is a reflection of that. Our culture does that. The media does that. The corporate media. And if you haven't noticed this yourself, I recommend paying attention. When people make opinionated statements, notice who is making qualifications who is adding some sort of don't hurt me statement to their opinion even when it's a very uncontroversial opinion that speaks volumes to me right batty and You know, I, I am preoccupied with this. When I pay attention, I end up distracted by these things. I end up infected. And I, I was going to do this episode earlier. I had to, I just, I needed to do another episode like this just to, at this point, I just have to say it. And it's difficult to do it on an interpersonal level. And I had a phone call with a friend earlier tonight. And the reason he called me, he called me pretty late at night. The reason he called me is because he had just gotten off the phone with his friend from his hometown. And I mentioned this before. I mentioned this just recently, so it's good timing. Because I mentioned on a recent episode how this friend has been telling me over recent months how his childhood friend used to be very reasonable. They go back, they go back many years. His friend used to have a very balanced take on things. And how this friend of his, like during the BLM protests and everything, my friend's friend told, told him how like his girlfriend was pressuring him to go to protests and his girlfriend was pressuring him to take on certain opinions. And that's a common story. I hear that over and over again from people, even people who stand on very firm ground and have well-established, strong romantic relationships. I hear a lot about their girlfriends and wives pressuring them. Pressuring them to have certain opinions. And I'm sure it goes both ways. But this is the environment we're currently in. And this friend of a friend, like he was kind of venting to my friend about how his girlfriend was pressuring him to take on certain opinions, to go to protests. And it doesn't, it doesn't sound like he was fighting with her over it or anything, but just that he had to vent about it to my friend. But then my friend's been telling me like over the last, probably this year, probably most of this year, 
how this friend of his has just fallen completely in line. How he's just given in completely, and not just given in, because it's one thing just to give in, but how this friend has started just lashing out at my friend. And my friend is not, he doesn't have controversial opinions. He's unvaccinated. And a lot of this issue revolves around that, where tonight, for example, you know, my friend called me, and I hate to talk about my friend's lives on here. I think it's one of the more regrettable things I do, and I try to be respectful, but it's interesting to me. And I think it's relevant. It is relevant. I don't just think it's relevant. It is relevant, which is why I'm talking about it. But he got off the phone with his friend, and he called me, and he was like, yeah, my friend, he... You know, he just like launched into me about being unvaccinated. And he was going on about how we need to reach this percentage. The amount of people who are unvaccinated in this country is embarrassingly low. And we need to reach this percentage. And because you're not vaccinated, you're part of the problem. And then that, of course, spiraled into other political conversations because everything is hyperlinked. It spiraled into every other topic. And this guy was attacking my friend about everything. And anytime my friend would try to make a point or tell him where he got certain information about whatever issue it was that was coming up, the guy was just so dismissive. And it's like, don't you respect your friends even if they disagree with you? If there's one quality that all of my friends have, it's that I do respect them, even though I disagree with them. And I try to make that point when I talk about these friends of mine who are on the far left, who I very strongly disagree with on a seemingly larger and larger number of issues. And I don't believe that's me changing. I believe my opinions have remained largely consistent. I'm willing to change and I enjoy changing and I don't mind being wrong, but I think my basic opinions have stayed fairly consistent over the years. I don't think very many people who know me would say, you've changed. Unless they've changed so radically and and remained unaware of that fact, I think that's the only way that you could really see my values fundamentally changing over the years. Hey, buddy. I mean, I have become a dog lover. I used to not like dogs. I used to avoid dogs, and now I have one, and I love them, and I think about them all day, every day. So I have changed. But when it comes to my values, they haven't changed much. The same is true for my friend. I know that he has stayed consistent. The reason he's one of my best friends is because his views have remained largely consistent. He and I don't agree on everything. I actually enjoy when he and I disagree because we really hash it out. And we don't expect the other person to change. And we don't insult the other person. When he tells me like why he thinks a certain way or where he heard something, I don't go, <laughs> oh, so you're getting into that. Oh, so you, I bet you heard that from this person. Oh, I bet you, oh, you're getting into conspiracy theories, huh? You're stupid now, huh? You know, I, I never go there with it because I respect him. 
And this same friend dealt with this with his ex-girlfriend, his now ex-girlfriend, where she she hopped on the train. You know, they were dating for most of 2020 and I believe into into like the first part of this year. And she was becoming increasingly this way too. And I think she's, I, I've never met her, but everything I know about her is that she's a, a basic, decent person. She's not a bad person. But she got increasingly dogmatic about all of these issues. And she said some things to my friend one night and he told me that like he's in response to her, he said, that's the kind of thing you say to somebody you hate. And I thought that was such a a striking way to respond to someone when they treat you that way. When somebody starts condescending you. Like, do you not value my intelligence? It's one thing to not agree with me. It's one thing to think I'm dead wrong. But don't talk to me like I'm someone you don't respect. And so this friend called me tonight after he talked to his other friend. My friend called me after he talked to his other friend. And then he talked to his friend. And I talked to my friend. No, but he called me afterward because he had to vent. Because he was just saying, like, this guy... It's just gotten worse and worse where he's so obsessed with this vaccine thing. And it's one thing if you value that, but what's so interesting about it is they live in different states. And my friend's life has no direct impact on this other guy's life. And they've always, they're good friends. They've known each other forever. They have a lot of the same interests. They have a similar sense of humor. So for this guy in another state to be trying to police my friend's life, that's what he's trying to do. No question about it. He's trying to police his opinions. He's become really politically correct about everything all of a sudden. And this is a guy who values art. In theory. And then when my friend offers his own opinion and tries to say why he thinks this way or even just explain where he's coming from, to describe where he's coming from. The guy is dismissive and basically thinks my friend is like tapped into some kind of bullshit funnel. It's just, that's where so much of this stuff rests. And just to finish a thought I was making a minute ago, you know, I have to say like, even when I'm critical of people I know, it doesn't come from a place of disrespect. Like, even the people last Friday, when I got online, I mean, I saw, just among the people I saw who had hysterical reactions to the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, I saw an ex-girlfriend of mine, I saw one of my mom's best friends, a girl that I went to high school with who I I haven't thought about in 18 years. I mean, I haven't been in high school now for almost 18 years, and this girl added me on Facebook a month or two ago, I never even talked to her. Like she was my friend's girlfriend's friend in high school. And I think at most, maybe once or twice, we stood in the same circle of people having a, a group conversation. But she and I have never had a, a one-on-one conversation in our lives. And I was kind of surprised she added me on Facebook because Facebook kind of hit a wall. We're like, I only have, I don't know, like 300 friends on there. 
I, I think I had like, I've had like 250 friends on Facebook for the last 10 years. Cause it was like when you first got on Facebook during that period where everybody was getting on there, you were getting friend requests every other day. But Facebook hit a wall where it's like you only, unless you're like constantly meeting new groups of people, you kind of hit a wall if you're a normal person where you're not getting random friend requests all the time. You know who you're going to know. And so I was kind of surprised that this girl from high school who I haven't had any interaction with in almost 18 years, that she added me. I was just like, oh, whoa, her. I forgot about her. But he, I, I got to know her opinion on the Rittenhouse verdict. Because she added me on Facebook a month ago, I got to see that she believes that the Rittenhouse verdict means that white supremacists now have full legal right to kill people who are protesting in favor of black and brown bodies, as they say. Which, of course, is insane. Oh, the Rittenhouse verdict, it means if you're a white supremacist, you can kill anyone who's protesting in favor of black lives. That's what she thinks. That's what she said. Haven't even thought about this girl for 18 years, but I know that that's what she thinks. And you know what? Even though I don't know her really, even though I had some very brief, even though I, I shared a school with her very briefly, I don't even disrespect her for thinking that. But it's like, these are people that I know. These are people who I have some connection to in life. But even though their opinion is very different, and in my opinion, insane, that might sound disrespectful, but that's just a, that's my catch-all word, insane, because I think it is. I think it defies sanity to jump to those kinds of conclusions. But my friend, for example, who called me tonight, like, he was disrespected by one of his childhood friends for having a different opinion about issues that have no impact on their friendship. And this guy felt the need to police him about it, to make extremely condescending remarks that insulted my friend. And I know that I, if I were to be more vocal, like outside of this show, I don't really talk to people about these things, which is one of the reasons why when I'm infected, I hit record. Because this is a place where I, I can express it out loud. And I don't even go, I don't even go off as, as much as I could. I try not to be angry on here, even though it happens sometimes. I don't even say all of the things that I'm thinking. I don't even say all of the th all of the conclusions I've made because I don't want this to be. I don't want to go too far with this. I don't think that's the purpose of this. And in the past, I've even tried to be more middle of the road than I actually am. Like when the BLM riots were happening, especially when they first erupted, when the protests started, and then when they morphed into riots. I tried to be more middle of the road about it on here than I actually was. Because there's value to doing that. You know, some people would say, oh, no, you should you should say exactly what you mean all the time. I think it's a good exercise to learn how to be middle of the road. 
but more and more i don't i don't feel the desire to even go through that because i see when i do try to be middle of the road i receive condescension too i've used the example on here of when i made a a, a very uncontroversial statement about free speech a guy that i used to hang out with every weekend here in olympia basically accused me of getting brainwashed by QAnon. QAnon. That's condescending. That's insulting. And that was me trying to be middle of the road about free speech. That was me offering an uncontroversial take on the freedom of expression. And I was accused by somebody that I used to spend a lot of time with. I was accused by him of becoming radicalized, even though my take on that has been constant. If there's, you know, it's one thing to say that my opinion has changed on something else. If someone thinks that my opinion on freedom of expression and my more or less absolutist take on free speech, if anybody thinks that has changed, they don't know me and never did. And maybe that's what we're running up against. Maybe we're running up against people who not only didn't know you, but fundamentally misunderstood you. And there's an authoritarian bend to all this. You must agree with me. You must agree with me or I will ostracize and insult you. It's not going anywhere. It's not ending. Obama bin Biden getting elected getting vaccinated. I'm vaccinated. I'm vaxxed. I've said that many times. That doesn't seem to make a difference. Things going their way don't seem to make that much of a difference to them. They want total control. They want everything to go their way, even though deep down it seems like they enjoy when it doesn't go their way. Because it does give them an even wider outlet for their grievances. And when things don't go their way, and you believe that a different way is more ideal, it makes you an even bigger target. And I'm a little bit hard on myself. I don't think that I express myself nearly as much as I should or could. I'd like to think that there is somebody who listens to this show still who gets some level of catharsis out of it, even though it's not really a, um, even though I avoid being a pundit and I'm not just going off all the time about every single thing I think or trying to be shocking or offensive hopefully there's something a little bit cathartic to somebody who listens to this 
I'm not really getting catharsis out of this. Even when I vent, it's not necessarily cathartic. I think I'm just saying the bare minimum because I would really enjoy saying a lot more. But I think that I would run the risk of fanning the flames because I don't want to go too far. In the same way that I see value to the exercise, if nothing else, of moderating what I say and what I think. And I mean, I appreciate moderates too. I have to say this because just to criticize the right wing a little bit, especially the new reactionary folks, I see this attitude a lot where it's like, I see people attack moderates who support some of the same fundamental values that we do. Like, there's a guy that I, I, I'm sort of loosely aware of. He's sort of on the periphery of my awareness, but he does a podcast and he has kind of his own niche following. And a friend of mine listens to his show, which is how I'm aware of him. And he's a gay man. And he offers good cultural commentary. He's a smart guy who pays attention to things. And he's constantly attacking moderates. He's kind of a new reactionary, and I'm guessing he was a leftist his entire life. Based on his interests, maybe based on the fact that he's a gay man. I get the impression he was probably a leftist who's taken a sudden turn to the right, like many gay men actually have. And, uh... He's constantly attacking people who are closer to him than they are far away. And I don't see much value to that. Now is not the time for that. Like he's, he's constantly going after people who do support free speech, but lean left. And I like those people. There are certain core values that if you support them and you support them earnestly... Right now, we have some serious common ground, and I don't really see much difference, even, even if I have different opinions on this or that, but he's constantly going after them, and I think part of it is that because this guy is a gay man, and because he comes from the left, I think he's trying to signal to other people on the right that he's not on the left. I think he's, it's like thou doth protest too much, where I think he's trying to signal and he's trying to make it abundantly clear that he's not even a moderate leftist. So he attacks moderates. He attacks people who rest somewhere in the middle, who actually agree with him on most things. And some of it's funny. Like, I think it's okay to mock anyone and everyone if it's funny, But I can't help but see that this guy, as a new reactionary, I can't help but see where he's trying to prove something. He's trying to prove that he's not a leftist. But who cares? You know, if someone listens to me and thinks I'm on the right or if they think I'm on the left, I don't care. My values are my values. Who cares? Who cares where it lines up? Tomorrow, somebody might think I'm something else, depending on the way the spectrum shifts. Yesterday, somebody might think I was this. Tomorrow, someone might think I'm this. That's of no importance to me. And I consider myself independent. 
but I'm not going to attack people who are promoting values that I agree with. And a good example of this is Bill Maher. And I bring him up now and again because I don't watch Bill Maher anymore. Like I like years and years ago when I had HBO, I would watch Bill Maher. And I always got something out of it. I don't think that Bill Maher is that funny. He makes statements that I disagree with. He had Trump derangement real bad. I found Bill Maher's level of Trump derangement somewhat embarrassing. And I know there was a deep personal problem. I think I'm pretty sure Trumpsfeld tried to sue Bill Maher or something, which is silly. So I can kind of get why he didn't like him, you know. And I, But I found it distracting that he was so disturbed by Trumpsfeld. But it didn't bother me and it didn't change my view of Bill Maher. And one of the values that Bill Maher has always stood strong for is free speech. To the point where neoconservatives literally canceled his show. They literally influenced the canceling of his show 20 years ago for making, in my opinion, a very correct statement. You know, if you're not familiar, Bill Maher had a a TV show about 20 years ago, a mainstream TV show called Politically Incorrect, which should tell you that Bill Maher has remained consistent. He's always been opposed to political correctness in all of its manifestations. He had a show called Politically Incorrect, and that show was canceled because Someone on that show referred to the 9-11 hijackers as cowards, and Bill Maher said, listen, listen, you can't call them cowards. Guys who are willing to fly planes into buildings, you can't really call them cowards. It's not an act. You can disagree with it, but it's not cowardice. People didn't like that. What he said is true. I mean, someone who has the balls to hijack a plane and crash it into a building... They're bad balls. We'd call that having a, a case of bad balls. But it's not cowardice. It takes something to be able to do that. So he's dealt with this in many ways. And, and now the left is, they just hate Bill Maher these days. The far left hates Bill Maher. And it started because he was critical of Islam. But now that Bill Maher is opposed to the current ideology, the current authoritarianism of the left, the authoritarian left really doesn't like him. And I see a lot of people on the right who are very critical of Bill Maher because he is a liberal. But it's like now is not the time to attack Bill Maher. Bill Maher is very consciously standing up for one of the core principles that you're defending. It would be great to reach a point again where you can attack Bill Maher. If you're on the right, you should hope that we reach a time where it's convenient to attack Bill Maher again. But right now is not the time. Right now is not the time to attack classical liberals. Even if you disagree with them on A, B, and C. 
And I see a lot of this, and it, 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 it does bother me. Because I think a lot of it, it's like this guy I was referring to, the gay man with the podcast. Because I see a lot of his perspective coming from this place of trying to prove that he's dedicated to his cause. I think a lot of his opinions come from that place. And who are you trying to prove it to? You should be thinking about your values. And right now, the core value to be standing up for is freedom of expression. So anybody who is supporting true freedom of expression right now is your ally. And when it becomes convenient again to split hairs about other issues, do it. And if you do have an issue with Bill Maher for another reason that's fundamental to you, well, that's one thing. But I see a lot of people attacking him because he doesn't agree with them 100%. And it's like he is a, a, a mainstream celebrity who speaks his mind truthfully and doesn't worry about the blowback, and he never has. We want that kind of person to be in the position he's in. So by being excessively critical of him, you're actually playing right into your enemy's hands. And I do think there are enemies. I don't like to think that way. But right now, it certainly feels that way. I really don't like to say that. But it's becoming more and more apparent that if you stand for if you stand for certain values, you have enemies right now. And if you don't see them that way, they certainly see you that way, and it's becoming more and more apparent. My friend getting attacked by his childhood friend tonight. A guy who was very moderate until recently. I know, I've never met this guy, but I know all about him. I've heard stories about him for years. Years. He's always sounded like a fun, decent guy. But he's completely caved in. It sounds like his brain is that bag, that goldfish bag of clear gel with puzzle pieces floating around in it. And I don't know that people like that are far gone. I don't want to see, I don't want to view anybody as hopeless or far gone. I didn't go to a party last weekend. I got invited to, I love the person who was hosting it. She's been a good friend of mine for years now, and I respect her. But I had other stuff to do. I had some business to take care of that just, I was like, you know what? Worrying about a party right now and driving and being there, it would be nice to see her. There's a good chance I wouldn't know anybody else. I don't drink anymore, so it's it would just be, you know, it might be a little weird. But another factor was political. Because it was the day after the Rittenhouse verdict. And I, I saw her express some things that told me it might not be a good idea to go. 
because I've been to parties with the same group of people in years past when things weren't nearly as tense. And people do just sit around and make small talk about politics. And I just don't want to be in that environment right now, especially the day after the Rittenhouse verdict. And it's unfortunate. And I, I saw something online where like somebody had posted this comic on the internet. And it was a father, it was like the like three panels, and it was a father telling his son, you have to remember to talk to your neighbors because you have a lot more in common than you realize, and you'll realize that you know things aren't necessarily as bad as they might seem. And the responses to this comic were very interesting because normally I would agree with it because you have that experience sometimes when you're kind of consumed, you're infected, you're poisoned by the political dialogue, and then you just you forget about it. You don't read anything for a week. And you're like, hey, life just feels normal. Life doesn't feel like you're in this pressure cooker and your conversations with grocery store clerks and neighbors and random people in your life don't seem that bad. Maybe there's something to that. And I think under normal circumstances that that's true. But it was interesting. This comic that was basically sending that message, the responses to it were all, yeah, I used to feel that way or things used to be that way. But every time I talk to anybody now in my day-to-day -day life, it, it just spins into some nightmare. Like somebody mentioned in the comments to this thing, they were like, you know, yeah, I used to feel that way. That I could just kind of have casual conversations with coworkers, but they they cited some example. They were like, I used to have this coworker where, like, you know, we would always joke around and get along, and it was just light and fun. And politics randomly came up, and now we don't talk. It got weird and dark and intense. And part of that is because people think that it's polite conversation to bring up politics. And I, I did an episode about this a little while back because. I've started to notice it more and more where the idea that politics aren't polite conversation and we don't talk about politics, sex, or religion, or money at the dinner table, that used to be just this commonly understood maxim. But one of the ideas that I've seen the left promote heavily, and I saw this especially during summer 2020, was that we need to ignore all po all polite conversation because politeness is toxic positivity and it is a form of violence because it ignores the injustices that are going on. I saw infographics about this. And this I've seen it repeatedly from liberal white women about toxic positivity. The idea that just making polite small talk and avoiding politics is a form of violence. And if you think I'm exaggerating, I'm not. This is what these infographics say. And these young women who I know were exposed to this idea and must have developed some sort of guilt about not talking about social politics all the time. Because these infographics tell them that's a form of violence. If you're not talking about 
divisive social politics all the time and promoting your values and ideas, which is to say the values and ideas of this cause you've become involved with, it's akin to violence. And I'm not exaggerating. That's what these infographics, that's what these articles say. And I made it a point to familiarize myself with them. And I make that a, a point on here that this isn't just things that I see once or twice. When an idea is starting to become popular, I make it a point to familiarize myself with it and see who is saying it, where it's being said, and how popular it's becoming. And that's one that became very popular over summer 2020, and it hasn't been walked back. And it's this idea that basic decency and politeness is toxic. And they've come up with this term, toxic positivity, which I couldn't even have made that up. Because we heard about toxic masculinity for years. But the idea that they would go from toxic masculinity to toxic positivity, which is to say that just basic decency politeness, smiling is somehow evil because it ignores injustice. And if you're not preaching about injustice all the time, injustice as your cause defines it, if you're not talking about that all the time, you're somehow promoting injustice. You're somehow promoting violence. It's unbelievable. And I think it plays into what I'm talking about and what these people were commenting on online, which is that, yeah, it used to be that you could just go outside, as they say. It used to be that you could just get away from the news, you could get away from the internet, maybe get away from certain people who are preoccupied with this stuff and just talk to your neighbor just talk to people. And yeah, there's still plenty of people that you can do that with. It's not like this is all consuming. The point is, is that it's become more difficult. And I relate to these people's experiences. These people who are saying, hey, yeah, that's a good idea. And I feel like it used to be true. But we exist in a time now where all bets are off. Interacting with your coworkers, interacting with your neighbors, interacting with your friends and acquaintances or even family, you never really know what bomb is going to get dropped in that conversation. And you either have to censor yourself, stay quiet, or get into an argument. And being quiet is a problem too. So it's like you're basically compelled to agree, or if you do say something, you're expected to give some kind of qualification. But you know, the thing about qualifying your statements to appease somebody who doesn't really respect your opinion is that you will lose respect for yourself, but the person that you're trying to appease won't even respect you. So that's the position we're in. That is the position we are in. And we are seeing how absolutely destructive the corporate media is. And I won't hold back at all when it comes to that.
Mainstream journalists are parasites. And I don't say that lightly. I don't say that flippantly. They are revealing themselves to be the most self-congratulatory parasites beyond what I already felt about them, which was pretty, I had a pretty low opinion already. And that goes back decades. You know, my opinion on corporate media goes back to when I was a teenager. I was well aware of what they were up to. I mean, anybody who lived through the post 9-11 period, the war on Iraq, that opened a lot of people's eyes in my generation. I don't think that opened my eyes, but it definitely confirmed some of what I already felt. Seeing the way the corporate media lied about Iraq, the way they supported the Bush administration, the deception that went on. And to see what they're doing now, which is even more careless and egregious than that, because it, it's internal to our own country, to our own society, and to see how divisive and destructive it is, to see how possessed it is. I mean, I don't know if people saw this, but there was, I can't remember which newspaper, which news corporation it was, but on Veterans Day, one of these big news corporations made a statement acknowledging veterans and they said, but we also want to acknowledge journalists for everything we do. Like you couldn't just acknowledge veterans in the same paragraph, in the same statement, you had to pat yourselves on the back. You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to be the ones patting yourselves on the back. But that's common in journalism. And journalists will often reference, you know, the, the persecution that journalists face under totalitarian regimes. Anytime someone criticizes a journalist, I mean, me calling them parasitic, they would say, oh, well, that brings to mind, you know, the way journalists get targeted, blah, blah, blah. Journalists are constantly under threat. Well, I think, I think sometimes they make themselves targets. And I'm not part of any authoritarian regime. I'm just a guy. So I can say whatever I want. I can feel however I want. I'm not calling for journalists to be harmed. But you can see where mainstream journalism today is so provocative, so deliberately provocative, so manipulative. And when anybody asks them to be held accountable, they're quick to play the victim. And I talked about that recently, about, you know, you can't be both a martyr and a victim. When someone becomes a martyr, it makes it impossible to also be a victim. They transcend victimhood. And people do this in their personal lives. But they try to act like a martyr while playing the victim. If you notice, mainstream journalism does that a lot. 
And it's ju just as manipulative. But man, what we're seeing play out, what we're seeing play out in the news, if you pay attention, it's incredible. I mean, I, I get an, a sense of enjoyment out of it, to be honest. It's so egregious. It's so over the top now. They forgot how to hide it. So you have to kind of love it. You have to kind of love it when it's so out in the open. And just to circle over to Coronavi here. Why is nobody asking questions about the origins of it now? That was one of the main topics of discussion for a few months. When Coronavi hit, one of the big topics was... We're trying to figure out where it came from. It, it might have come from Chinese people eating bats. It might have come from a wet market. Oh, it might we think it came from pangolins. I had to look up what a pangolin even was. Is that a bird? Oh, no, it's a reptile? It's like an armadillo? What the heck is a pangolin? Don't, but don't, whatever you do, don't mention laboratories. Don't even hint at the idea that scientists engineered coronavirus. Even if it was an accident that it got out, don't even hint at the idea that it originated in the Wuhan laboratory that was studying and developing very similar respiratory diseases. Don't even mention that. And then John Stewart mentioned that recently, and you were banned, like or not, you know, you were um, suppressed on social media or for suggesting the lab leak theory. It was heavily censored for quite a while. People got a lot of pushback, a lot of grief over it. The idea of su even suggesting that coronavi began in a laboratory, that it was developed by scientists was considered crackpot conspiracy theory. And then Jon Stewart went on Stephen Colbert and said that. He said, let's consider lab leak. He made a joke of it, but he pushed it. And you could see Stephen Colbert become very uncomfortable because he's a regime stooge. Colbert is a, a total regime stooge. And Jon Stewart, you know, brought it up. He said, you know, hey, maybe there's something to the lab leak idea. But since then, there's been no conversation about it. Trust the science. Well, what if the science developed the dang thing? What do we do then? It goes back to what I always talk about and I've been talking about for years, where there's a scientific protection racket, where it's like, we will destroy the earth, we will destroy you, but you must come to us to be saved. And if you don't, we will demonize you. And that's what we're seeing now. And I don't even know, you know, who knows what the origins are. Point is, is it's not even really being discussed. Shouldn't that be central to every discussion? Shouldn't we know a lot more about it now? Haven't we, hasn't enough time passed? Haven't we collected enough information that we can, even if we can't answer that question? And obviously somebody knows the answer. Obviously, quite a few people in powerful positions probably know the answer. 
but that that isn't central to every conversation. It's just, oh, there's a new variant. Get the vac. Oh, you might have to get a booster now. I might have to give you a booster. How about this? Before I get a booster, let's have a serious, in-depth, public conversation about what the government knows about its origins. And I think they could give us a lot of information that they're not willing to give us. Enough time has passed where if this is going to continue, if we're going to keep allowing friends to demonize friends and turn on people, my friend having to endure his girlfriend and then now one of his childhood friends attacking him for not getting vacked, I think we deserve to hear a little bit more about what they know. And if this was engineered in a laboratory, even if it was leaked accidentally, how could we ever trust the science again? How could you ever trust the science again if coronavi is the product of scientific engineering? How could you ever trust these people again? And the fact that it's not part of the conversation is all the more damning. But people know exactly how every court case should be decided. They know everybody's motivations. They know exactly how you should think and why you should think it. And they're willing to split hairs. They're willing to dissect your every thought. You know, but... Um, there's something really nasty going on. And I'm not so arrogant to believe that I know exactly what it is. I have my own hunch. I have my own assumptions. Whether they're right or wrong, I'm willing to be wrong about them. But that's the whole point is I'd like to be proven wrong at this point. There's a strange dance going on. And that's how I see all of this. There's a very strange dance. And it goes back to one of my favorite quotes that I occasionally bring up on here from Zbigniew Brzezinski, I believe his name is. But, you know, history is more the product of chaos than conspiracy. And I have to remind myself of that. It's not that I believe there's necessarily some grand conspiracy that has dictated all of this. But I believe there are a bunch of conspiracies within the chaos that has gone on. I'm willing to believe that a certain amount of this was unpredictable. That a certain, I'm not just talking coronavirus, I'm talking everything. Everything that's playing out. All of the tension. All of the argument. All of the debate. I'm willing to believe that it's being governed primarily by chaos. But within that chaos, I believe a lot of conspiracies are being carried out. 
whether it's in response to the chaos, whether it's in response to this, whatever it is. And people believe they are so right. They believe they are so right about the past, present, and the future, apparently. I'm glad we have it all figured out. I'm so glad we know exactly how things worked in the past, how they work in the present, how they're going to work in the future. I'm glad we figured all that out. It's too bad some people won't just go along with it. No, there's something nasty afoot. There's something very nasty. And there's a strange dance taking place. And I have to admit, my outlook has been pretty grim. You know, I have my own base optimism. I don't hate life. I don't hate people. I'm not mad at anyone. Maybe journalists, right? No, you know, but I'm not truly deeply mad at anybody. Because there's a level of manipulation going on that makes it difficult to blame anyone in particular. I certainly have no ill will toward Jabama bin Biden. It's very clear that that guy's not in control of much. And I find the humor. I think he's funny. I think Jabama bin Biden... I think Brandon is funny. Like that thing today where he he said, end of quote. (laughs) You know, he gave some speech and he was reading from a teleprompter and he said, end of quote. I think that's funny. But he's part of the dance. And I just hope some people know where to halt themselves. Because we're seeing where people have shown a willingness to demonize each other. A willingness to talk about each other in such horrible terms consistently. Beyond my wildest comprehension, I knew people were capable of it. And things haven't gotten nearly as bad as they could. So I don't want to dramatize. But I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen people be so terrible to each other psychically. And I won't celebrate a death. I won't celebrate anybody's murder. Even if people I vehemently disagree with. And I see a lot of celebration. I see a lot of encouragement of that. And that worries me. It it worries me probably more than anything else. The way that my friend was being talked to today by his childhood friend, of course, I wasn't a witness to the actual conversation, but I know my friend very well, and I know that he would tell me, he would give me an accurate view of what this conversation was like. He would tell me exactly what was said. And what he told me was 
that basically what Ted Kaczynski said of, you know, the leftist psychology is that in individualism by its very nature is a threat to the group. And this guy was telling my friend, like, you're not going along with the group. He was actually saying that because you're not getting vacked and you're not doing what's best for the group, you're a problem. You're the other. And for one, that's just no way to convince anybody of anything. It's like that quote that my mom wrote down before she died. Anyone convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. The need to coerce, the need to convince. What are you up to? What are you up to when you're doing that? You don't even know what you're up to. But coercion is a poor argument. Coercion is a poor argument. Whew. Got a serious one here, guys. I've been looking for opportunities for humor, but I'm just, I got to get this off my chest, you know, every other day these days. And it's all mixed in, too. Because my friend was telling me how his friend today, he was also talking about guns and how we need to we need to take guns out of everybody's hands and we need to. So it's like you know this guy, this guy who otherwise was an easygoing guy who my friend's known forever, just laid it all on him. And you know what? My friend's not even a gun owner. The guy who was getting preached to. The guy who was getting who was on the receiving end of this coercive argument, he doesn't even own a gun. And this guy was going off on him about gun ownership, and I don't own a gun either. But I, my friend and I, we both are fine with people owning guns. We're more than happy that we have friends who have guns. I'm glad my friends have guns. And I always love it when I find out a friend that I didn't know owned a gun turns out to have one. There was a guy I worked with for a while. He had played in an indie rock band briefly in the 90s. Pretty liberal guy. This is around 2011. Very easygoing, funny. And one day we were talking about guns randomly. Like somehow it came up just... And I, you know, I think... He obviously felt comfortable enough around me, and he was just like, oh, I have a Beretta in my trunk. And I, was, I said, what? And he's like, yeah, I, he's like, I have a Beretta, and I keep it in my trunk. And he did. He had a Beretta in his trunk. Completely unassuming guy. The last person you would ever expect to, have a, to keep a gun in the trunk of his car. I always love that. I always love when somebody totally unsuspecting, unassuming, when they just let it drop, like, oh yeah, by the way, I own a gun. But not just own a gun, I have a Beretta in my trunk. A Beretta, that's nice. I always think of Berettas as like the 90s cop guns. I don't know if cops actually use those, but people were obsessed with Berettas for a while.
but um you know it's all hyperlinked is the thing a, a conversation about any one of these things can morph into a conversation about any number of other issues it's all hyperlinked together my friend could get a lecture about being unvacked and that could morph into a conversation a lecture about gun ownership and how nobody should own guns anymore and it doesn't even make a difference that my friend doesn't own a gun the fact that he has an opinion on guns that is different from this other guy basically makes him a target. It makes him the other. And that's where all of this is coming from. It doesn't actually matter what you do or don't do, what you own or don't own. Me being vacked, but being against vac mandates, in a lot of people's eyes, makes me an anti-vacker. How could I possibly be an anti-vacker if I'm vacked? I mean, I guess you could be. But I'm not opposed to the great vacking. And actually, you know what? I am opposed to the great vacking. But I'm not opposed to getting vacked because I got vacked. So clearly I'm not that opposed to it if I was willing to let them stick a, a silver needle in my arm twice. But the fact that I don't agree with mandates, in many people's eyes, makes me an anti-vacker. So it doesn't even seem to make a difference. And pretty soon, if they start requiring the booster, the, the Worcester booster, the booster from Worcester, if they start requiring a booster... And I say, hey, you know what? I got vacked. I got the two vac. I don't really feel like going along with this endless program. If I were to say that, suddenly I become an anti-vacker, even more so. So it doesn't really seem to matter what you, you do or don't do. It's all about what you think. It's all about expressing your individuality. And as I've said before, I don't value individuality for the sake of individuality. But I do value the allowance for individuality. I greatly value that. We depend on that. And it's good for all of us. In the same way that people think it's good for everybody to think or do something that they see as a service to the greater good, it's good that some people push back on that. It's good that some people outright oppose it. That's part of the good dance. The good dance is the one where somebody says, do this, and somebody says, no. Because we learn more through that. We learn a lot more when somebody says no. And you know what? We also learn more when someone like me is involved. And I say, okay, I'm going to do that. But I'm not going to go along entirely with it. It's good that somebody said no. It's good that somebody said yes. And it's good that somebody like me says yes but supports the person who says no. It's good that we have all of that. 
It's good that we have all of that. Because nobody is being coerced entirely. Nobody is being forced. Nobody is being allowed to believe that they are completely, totally right about everything because nobody deserves to be. Nobody is. Nobody is completely right about everything. And that's really at the core of all of this is that some people believe they are right about everything. I know that I'm not. I know that I'm not right about everything. But I know that nobody else is either. You know, that's just what's at the bottom of all of this. Is arrogance, hubris, audacity, a lack of humility... Happy Thanksgiving. This land is mine. God gave this land to me. This brave, this golden land to me. And when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains, I see a land where children can run free. Take